The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Superman was one of the most important and recognisable characters in comics. But despite reading comics from being about six years old, he was never a must-buy for me. Some of this was availability. A lot of the comics I read featured superheroes, but they were given no more or less prominence than other genres of comics, be it the humorous kid stuff like the Beano, the Dandy or Wizard and Chips, the war comics like Battle or combat, science fiction like 2000 AD or Doctor Who, and of course Marvel Comics UK arm, which had a number of titles like The Mighty World of Marvel, Star Wars and Spider-Man TV comic. Superman featured in annuals every year, and there was a line of full-colour pocketbooks featuring the character. But other than the short-lived monthly The Superheroes, Superman didn't have a regular presence in the UK newsagents. To find Superman comics, one had to venture further afield. Back in the day, comics were available everywhere. Post offices, newsagents, big and small, supermarkets, petrol stations. Anywhere you could buy a newspaper, you could buy a comic. And yet DC Comics didn't seem to want my money. Marvel had a UK publishing presence where they repackaged their characters and strips into a format more befitting the market they were trying to crack. As such, UK versions of Marvel Comics were, like the Beano and 2000 AD, anthologies featuring three or four strips per issue. They were an eclectic mix. Spider-Man may also feature the adventures of Thor, Iron Man or Captain America. Star Wars would have a ROM backup strip or the Micronauts or Indiana Jones. The wider world of Marvel Comics laid before us. To read DC Comics, you had to find newsagents that sold American comics. And American comics were funny. They were smaller, but to counter this... They were in full colour. They rarely had multiple strips. Rather, they focused on one character, or sometimes a main strip, and a backup strip, with a character who may be part of that overall family of characters, or who may have been much loved, but couldn't support their own series, sales-wise. They were also harder to find, showing up on market bookstalls or city centre newsagents, if you were lucky. If you found a newsagents or market stall that carried the US editions, they did tend to be DC comics, not Marvel. Marvel didn't want the consumer buying the US editions. They had their own comics to sell. As such, whilst US Marvel comics were available, they tended to be Marvel 2-in-1 or Power Man and Iron Fist, series that didn't feature in the UK versions. You couldn't get Star Wars or The Amazing Spider-Man for love nor money. No, I just loved comics. Any comics. But if pressured, I preferred Marvel. Largely because Marvel were there. I did occasionally venture into DC, but not a lot, and never really beyond the big two. I had Superman and Batman annuals and pocketbooks, and I liked them a great deal. But I didn't really know any of the other DC heroes other than Wonder Woman and The Flash, another character I did pick up when I saw his comics. 
Largely though, this was because the DC comics I bought didn't seem as good as Marvel comics. Batman comics always had potential, especially when names I recognised from Marvel comics were drawing and writing it. Names like Len Wein or Jerry Conway or Gene Colan. There was this new series, the New Teen Titans, that I would get whenever I could. And they had a decent Star Trek comic. But the others seemed old-fashioned. Stayed. A bit dull. Superman fell into this category. I would buy Superman or Action Comics or DC Comics Presents whenever they had a cover that appealed to me, but mostly I was never blown away by them. They felt samey, the same stories recycled and reheated. Every now and again there'd be a story that was really good. When Gil Kane took over Action Comics, that was like a bucket of ice water to the face. And there were special issues, like issue 400 or a few DC Comics Presents annuals that were stunning. But overall... Superman felt old. As a kid, I felt that Kurt Swan, the artist who seemed to be the guy who drew every Superman comic, was stiff and boring. He was no George Perez. He was no John Byrne. When I was ten, John Byrne was the artist by which all others were judged. He was a rising star at Marvel Comics, drawing the X-Men and some Spider-Man comics. I'd read X-Men in the mighty world of Marvel, and the art was beautifully detailed and rich. And he actually made me like the X-Men, a strip I previously couldn't care less about. His art in Spider-Man TV comic, I didn't know back then that these were strips from Marvel Team-Up, wasn't as good, but it was still slick and modern. I started being able to get more and more American comics around this time, and so I was buying Fantastic Four and Alpha Flight, two comics Byrne was drawing and writing. He was so revered at this time, even comics that had John Byrne covers commanded high prices on the back-issue market. I discovered Comic Marts in Manchester and started snapping up anything I could find by Byrne. Old issues of Space 1999, an issue of Marvel 2-in-1, a US Spider-Man annual with Doctor Octopus. There's a great Hulk annual he did, and I even managed to snag Captain America issue 250 from a market stall, the great issue where Cap considers running for president. I bought the art of John Byrne from Odyssey 7, the first specialist comic shop in my area. If his name was on it, I bought it. Silver Surfer won, Indiana Jones won, an issue of the Avengers, whatever it was, I had to have it. And then, the biggest disappointment of my comic reading life thus far. I picked up my regular stash from the little newsagents I'd found that carried American comics. In the stack was Fantastic Four issue 294. Where the hell was John Byrne? The issue, part two of a continued story, was written by Roger Stern, with art by Jerry Ordway, as fine a pair of creators as ever worked in comics. But I was expecting John Byrne. I wanted John Byrne. Now these issues aren't bad, to be fair, but they got progressively worse. Issue 296, ostensibly a massive celebration of the Fantastic Four's 25th anniversary, was, to my then 14-year-old eyes, dreadful. Made doubly so, because just a few months earlier, Byrne had given an interview to Marvel Age, where he'd spoken of his plans for issues 296 and issue 300. And whatever it was he'd talked about, this wasn't it. I dropped the book. I didn't buy another issue of the Fantastic Four until Jim Lee did Heroes Reborn. 
But what of Byrne? In one of the biggest publishing coups since Jack Kirby defected from Marvel to go to DC in 1970, DC Comics announced they had signed John Byrne to their roster, and his job would be to reinvigorate Superman. It's hard to describe how massive this news was at the time. It was seismic. Marvel's number one guy, the biggest success story in recent years. A man whose mere name on a comic could send it skyrocketing on the back issue market was not only going to be working at DC Comics, but he'd be taking over the biggest character. Simply astounding. The hype was astonishing, even for a kid from the north of England with no real access to information other than what appeared in the meanwhile columns at the back of DC Comics. We knew of The Dark Knight, the Teen Titans was beloved, and Swamp Thing had been getting good notices. There was also a lot of talk at this time of this new series, Watchmen or something. Were DC on a turnaround? Is it a coincidence that the month and year that Burn Superman debut appeared on the stands, July 10th, 1986, Marvel Comics' slide into mediocrity for the rest of the 80s was more than apparent? For me, I could not wait for this new Superman comic. I'd love the Superman movies, which felt up to date and modern in a way the comics didn't. Richard Donner and Christopher Reeve had made Superman feel real and relevant again, curiously by embracing his inherent corny appeal. Sincerity, it appears, can stay in style, if handled properly. I was now 14. I was allowed to go to the city on my own, on the train, as long as I was back before it was too late. I knew how to get to Oxford Road in Manchester on my own. It was a simple train journey. And I knew that I needed to get this comic new and before it appeared in UK newsagents. One thing I had discovered once I found Odyssey 7 was that American comics arrived in the UK newsagents three months after their American release date due to being shipped over by boat. I later discovered they were used as ballast. And the benefits of this tardy shipping was the comics were a lot cheaper than getting them from Odyssey 7, sometimes to the tune of 10 whole pennies. Hey, you may mock, but at that time, that was an extra comic for every three bought, and I like to buy a lot of comics. The date, July 10th, is a Thursday, so it worked out well. This meant it would be Saturday before Odyssey 7 would get the comics. Perfect. I hatched my plan. The 7.45 train would get me to Oxford Road at 8.36. It was then a 10-minute walk down Oxford Road to the University Precinct, where Odyssey 7 was located. Up the escalators, at the University Shopping Centre, a mecca for the students of Manchester at that time. I love it when a plan comes together. Sadly, Odyssey 7 and the Precinct Centre no longer exists. Odyssey moved to Manchester City Centre and was later bought out by Forbidden Planet and the University Centre was razed and rebuilt after concerns over its unstable construction. But whilst at Odyssey 7, I could look at Starlog magazine. Then maybe I could nip into town to see if our price had James Horner's score for Aliens, or maybe pick up the Alan Dean Foster novel. I dutifully jumped on the train. Oh, I think I did. Did I do this for Man of Steel number one? Or did I do it two weeks later and buy Man of Steel number two at the same time? Memory, as John Nathan Turner once said, cheats. I think I bought Man of Steel number one's variant cover on this first trip. And I bought the newsstand cover and issue two on the second trip. 
but I don't really remember. I do remember that this is one of only two times I deliberately bought two covers of the same comic. This, because it was John Byrne and it would be worth something. And also, it was incredibly rare back then that a comic had two different covers. Times change. The point remains. I had in my clammy teenage hands a historical event. A first issue of a Superman comic. A massive rarity. Times again change. Man of Steel issue 1, variant edition, has a silver logo. A silver logo, how decadent! And was simply Superman ripping open his shirt to reveal the famous S shield. I mean, it may be Superman, it could be a stunt double, we don't see his face. Just that famous chest and the red and yellow emblem. Number 1 cost a whopping 75 cents, or 30 pence. It may have cost me as much as 50 pence as I bought it in Odyssey 7, remember? That's a massive £1.50 today. Which just goes to show how much comics have increased in price in relation to inflation. But this was no ordinary comic. No, 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 no. This comic was 32 pages of art and story with no ads. The back cover advertised the rest of this epoch-making miniseries that would re-envision Superman for the 80s. The inside cover was a meanwhile column by DC's then-Vice President Dick Giordano. And the back cover was a text piece by Byrne himself. The meanwhile columns were always a delight. Giordano was more of a straight shooter than his Marvel counterpart Jim Shooter, and nowhere near as hyperbolic as Stan Lee. Giordano's columns tended to be more factual, more open, and, at least felt, more honest. This one is a belter. Giordano talks about his childhood and how he fell in love with comics and with Superman. Most comics readers of the time will have felt a certain kinship with Giordano after this piece. I know I did. He also talked about how John Byrne had been hired to work on Superman, the plans for the character, and the problems, as they saw them, which had accumulated around Superman since his inception nearly 50 years earlier. It was tantalising stuff, a precursor to the delights that were to follow. The story was called From Out the Green Dawn. It was written and pencilled by John Byrne with inks, allegedly, by Dick Giordano. Berner said on his website that he can't be sure Giordano actually inked the series after all, as Giordano did have a habit of farming inks out to his staff. The first thing Byrne should be commended for is Krypton. Every version of Krypton post-Superman, the movie, has been inspired by the crystal aesthetic design of that film. Byrne's Krypton was markedly different to the version of Superman's home planet we'd seen before, be it the sterile, cold environs Marlon Brando inhabited, the Flash Gordon B-grade science fiction of the 50s TV show, or the more gleaming 50s rocket ship look of the comics. Byrne redesigned Krypton from the ground up. More organic than the films, less pulpy than the comics, Byrne's Krypton was during and different. The robes are still present and correct, but there's a sleek modernism to the planet with sweeping citadels, hovering robots and a clipped, static way of speaking from the inhabitants. Many of Byrne's alterations and updates have survived through the years, but the most surprising is the Elves' personal robot, Keelix, who has been in many subsequent versions of the story. I have subsequently been informed by From Crisis to Crisis guru Michael Bailey that Byrne wanted to do the movie Krypton, 
but rights issues or somebody at DC Comics had a clearer head. Byrne's dialogue as it often was is straight to the point. Byrne could be flowery but his dialogue was normally direct, not particularly witty but he was economical. We quickly learn that Lara and Jorel, typical of the Kryptonians of this era, are prudes. They live in a hermetically sealed environment, the clothes covering their entire bodies, their physical desires denied. They have conquered every aspect of the planet, from the weather to the population, but at a cost of their very emotions. Despite this, Lara seems very emotional. She practically screams at Jorel for removing their baby from the gestation chamber. The implication being that Kryptonian babies are artificially created from a mother's egg and a father's sperm without any actual intercourse taking place. It would certainly explain why these people are so uptight. Oddly, Jarrell refers to himself as human when he tells Lara that despite all they have achieved, it is as nothing when stripped of human feeling. Why would Jarrell refer to himself in such a way? He isn't human, he's Kryptonian. He tells that in this version not only is Krypton destined to be destroyed thanks to the vast pressures building within the planet's crust, but that the people are being killed by a radioactive element within the planet being caused by the fusing of the core. So in this version, the Kryptonians are dying of space cancer in addition to the planet's foretold doom. It's not a massive leap here, certainly not one over a tall building, to see Byrne future-proofing his work in such a way that there could be no further survivors, for if there were, they would have this illness. However, he also seems to leave himself an out. The baby was protected in the birthing matrix. Could, perhaps, other babies be similarly protected? A question destined to remain unanswered. Jarell has been studying, and a far-off planet called Earth may be the Kryptonian people's salvation. The baby's birthing matrix could survive a trip through hyperspace, although it would not survive the destruction of the planet. And upon arrival on Earth, under the Earth's yellow sun, the baby would grow to be abnormally powerful. The shots of Earth Jarell shows Lara horrify her. A topless man working the land causes it to fall away in shrewish terror. She assumes that their son will grow and then rule Earth, shape them to proper Kryptonian ways. She is firmly of the belief that it is the Kryptonians' right to conquer another planet and mould them to their ways of thinking. Their way is the best way. If Byrne's intent was to make Lara and Jorel and by extension Krypton, a planet that deserved to be destroyed, he succeeds. It's a subtle character beat, as it underscores the importance of the Kents in future Superman's upbringing. It's also an odd piece of characterization, as you just know Lara is a space Karen, and thus clearly a science denier. She's in complete denial that the superior Kryptonians could die out in this way, completely oblivious to the evidence as presented. Even as Krypton starts shuddering in its death throes, she's demanding they find a way to stop it. For some reason, Jarell reveals he's in love with Space Karen, despite them having only a rudimentary partnership, which even Jarell describes as being told your seed and mine would be mingled, which, as sexy Tinder profiles go, needs a little bit of work. It's an effort to redeem Jarell and make Lara 
slightly likeable at the last moment, but it doesn't really work. Let's just blow these sorry superior prudes out of the sky and get on with the story. Burn is canny here. The baby is never referred to as Kalel, nor does he touch either his parents or the planet. There's no indication in this issue his name is Kalel, and his connection to Krypton is less than nothing. As the rocket zooms away from the exploding planet, a lone piece of its legacy is caught in the ship's engines. I enjoyed this opening as a kid, and I think it really solidifies my idea that Krypton is a MacGuffin. It's there to give the world Superman and then get the hell out of Dodge. I never believed in Krypton as somewhere Superman pined for. Endlessly. Endlessly pined for. He didn't know the place. Launch the pod, blow the planet up, move on. Nowadays, a lot of my opinions on life, comics and everything have changed. But not this one. Superman doesn't care for Krypton. Neither do I. Nothing good ever came for pining over something that you can't have. Burns' art is softer here than over at Marvel and doesn't seem as detailed. I attribute that to Dick Giordano's inks. Giordano always had a softer line, and in many places this looks shot from the pencils. It's probably the closest to seeing pure burn pencils than anything published to this point. With the prologue over, chapter one jumps 18 years into the future. This middle chapter is probably Burns' largest change to the mythos. Clark has no idea who he is or his powers and is a high school football player and a massive success. I don't really remember this bothering me much as a kid, but it does now. Clark is still super powered, even if he doesn't know it. He's lucky he never crippled anybody. Park Kent isn't terribly happy with Clark's success, which begs the question why he lets Clark play in the first place. Both Smallville, Superman the movie. Future adaptations, Smallville, Superman the movie and the new Superman and Lois have gotten mileage out of the football idea, showing, once again, that whilst it may give me pause, the idea had legs. With Parr fuming over Clark's prowess, he takes Clark to a field on the Kent land and reveals to him in short order that he came from a spaceship and that the man and woman he believes to his parents actually found him in said spaceship, meaning he's an alien from another world. It's an awful lot for poor Clark to digest, but we don't really dwell on it. In a real stroke of good fortune, Smallville was hit by the grandfather of all blizzards the night the starship crashed, trapping the Kents and their new addition in the remote farmhouse for five months. When the storm was over, the Kents merely introduced Clark as their own baby, birthed during the storm. One of the things Byrne has been accused of over the years is his desire to over-explain certain things, and the adoption of Clark is a hard one to cover. I personally think the older comics got it perfectly right, and there wasn't really any need for elaboration. There's an older story that has the Kents find the baby and take him to an orphanage, saying they just found it. They then say they couldn't get the poor child out of their minds, and they adopt him, formally. It's always seemed reasonably credible to me. Clark would have no known birth date or parentage other than the Kents, who adopted him legally. I guess by the 1980s DNA testing was a thing, so Byrne felt the need to pass Clark off as the Kents' own child. I suppose if Clark was never known to be adopted, then no one would suspect him of being 
anything other than what he claims to be. Nowadays, Clark will be in therapy for years after this news. Back then, he accepted it, moved on. We also learn that at an early age, Clark was caught under the hooves of a raging bull, and that poor Parkent, named Jonathan, saw his brother fall into a thresher. Which, Jesus, that's pretty dark. I wonder why Byrne felt the need to put that in. Clark was unharmed, unlike Parkent's poor brother, and Pa, oddly, didn't tell Ma he had named Martha. It surprises me slightly Byrne didn't go back to the Kent's original names, Sarah and Eben Kent, as that seems to be the kind of thing he'd do just to piss people off. In short order, Clark finds he can lift trucks, see through walls, and even fly. And Jonathan still let him play football. Seems like pretty irresponsible parenting to me, but... We do find out later that Jonathan and Martha did sit Clark down with every new power and explain to him that with great power must also come great responsibility. But Clark apparently didn't listen. Again, he's lucky he didn't learn that lesson the hard way like Peter Parker did. Although Clark's crushing someone's bones to dust in a scrum may have been taking it a tad far. As Clark approaches his starship, he starts to feel dizzy. We see that piece of kryptonite from the prologue glowing. In a setup for the future, a shadowy figure is seen watching them. I never thought much of it at the time, other than this was indeed a plot thread for the future, but it's another amazing coincidence this figure was there on the very night Jonathan took Clark to see the spaceship. The middle chapter is interesting in that if you take the idea of Clark's powers developing over his time in high school, you've got the TV show Smallville. Again, the influence of this series is felt keenly and long after its publication. It's very much exposition overload, though. Information the character needs to learn, but that he just passively takes on board. Later iterations would probably have Clark act badly to this information, more like an actual teenager. But Byrne was probably right to skip that part and get to the meat of the story. Clark towering over his adoptive parents is a funny visual for anyone who's had kids that are taller than they are, and they can certainly relate to it. Again, I know I can. It's always nice to see Clark as more relatable in his manner and his dress sense, removed from the hilariously dated sweatshirts of the Superboy strips and the drab suits of the main Superman comics. His tousled hair and more modern sartorial style would be applied to both Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and Smallville, and seeing Byrne's depiction of Clark here shows what a good piece of casting Tom Welling was. Of course, the elimination of Superboy from the history was controversial, but I didn't care. He wasn't Superboy in the film, and besides, I thought Superboy was silly. As a 14-year-old, I thought it really made the characters seem dumb that they couldn't figure out Clark was Superman, especially when he and Superman both came from the same small town, a small town where Superboy also lived. Also, I never related to Superboy. The Superboy comics I had read, which weren't many, I grant you, were too syrupy. They reminded me of bad 50s sitcoms with middle-class girls in prom dresses and posh preppy kids with perfectly slicked hair and letterman jackets. Said nothing to me about my life. Give me the angst-ridden, politically aware, sexy shenanigans of Peter Parker's life any day of the week. Murray Jane and Gwen seem far more intelligent and beautiful and, yes, sexy than Lana Lang. It came across as petty and irritating. 
Chapter 2 skips forward another seven years and is entitled The Exposure. It's early on a Saturday morning. Jonathan surfaces late, but Martha is already cutting out the headlines in the newspaper for her scrapbook. The headlines are all disasters that could have been and weren't, thanks to Clark. Byrne has Jonathan ask Martha what would a burglar make of her interest in all this. Again, setting up a future storyline where that exact thing happens. We learn that Clark has been operating in secret for a good few years, saving people and apparently raising the Titanic. I found this curious. One of the main buys of superhero comics is that we, as an audience, accept the existence of these godlike beings and that that doesn't alter the world at all unless that's the point of the story. We all know that's patently absurd, but it's a part of the mythology. But let's be honest, a world with even one superpowered being would be drastically different to the one in which we live. The mere existence of a Superman would throw into question many scientific and religious doctrines we believe to be self-evident. But we buy it because it's a large part of the philosophy and mythology of these stories. But having Clark raise the Titanic, a real disaster, kind of makes me go, hmm. Because it begs the question of how he did that in such a way as to not be discovered. And why he did that, but hasn't bothered with, say, the Andrea Gale. Interfering with these disasters also demonstrate how a world with a Superman would be very different. How would Hurricane Katrina or 9-11 be different with a Superman? And then you can see why we don't introduce these kinds of things, because they lead to uncomfortable questions. Even at 14, I was curious by that. These questions continue as Jonathan discovers Clark has been seen helping prevent an experimental space plane from crashing. To perhaps provide an argument for leaving these characters out of real life events, this was originally to be a space shuttle that Clark saved, but was to be published very near to the Challenger space shuttle disaster, and, rather correctly and properly, the comic was altered accordingly. Jonathan hears a noise upstairs, and in Clark's room he finds a moody and pensive Clark, who tells him all the details. John Byrne is a curious and mercurial figure. He often derides comics and other creators for choices they make, and yet has made similar choices himself. This is an example of that. He's chided writer Brian Bendis for taking seven issues to tell the story of Spider-Man's origins, stating that you get the character in costume as soon as possible. And yet here... He has Superman make his world debut in a tan leather jacket and jeans. It's a bizarre and unusual storytelling choice. Burton is not above flowery prose, as I've mentioned, and occasional lapses in logic. As Clark tells Ma and Pa of the incident, he tells us there was to be a large celebration for Metropolis's 250th anniversary. Clark has been living in Metropolis for three years, although we aren't told what he's been doing in that time or how he's been making a living. Arrangements have been made to have the experimental space plane Constitution land at Metropolis International Airport. This major event, under tight security and, presumably, military and police scrutiny, apparently allowed a one-man civilian aircraft into its airspace and it collided with the Constitution. That seems like a stretch, but it's a superhero comic about a flying man, so we'll go with it. 
The flowery prose comes from Clark, who describes the collision of the two aircraft as still locked together, like dancers in some obscene ballet. But I guess Clark is a writer. Or will be. Clark saves the space plane and, rather than take off straight away, he hangs around long enough for Lois and he to share a moment together. It's another moment I struggle with now. She clearly sees Clark here in civilian clothes and they lock eyes long enough for Clark to feel a spark between them, which is presumably the static electricity of his tan leather jacket, and yet she doesn't seem to equate this meeting with Clark when they meet later. It's one thing to be dazzled by a flying man in a skin-tight blue suit, bright red boots and a cape who's just saved your life, as was the Lois of the movie, whose debut scene between Superman and Lois this scene is clearly homaging. It's another entirely to basically meet Clark and then forget it ever happened. Superman's disguise is one of comics' biggest suspensions of disbelief, so calling attention to it with a scene like this is troublesome. Still, the scene is exciting and well-rendered. Byrne's face has been unique and distinctive in the crowd scenes, an artistic triumph for which he's never really credited. Numerous fans still chide Byrne's faces for all being the same. They don't look all the same here. Clark is less than charitable to the populace as well, describing humanity as maggots who all wanted something from me. And this is a far cry from the man who is here to save people who can be good if they choose to be. But then again, this is a Clark who doesn't have the weight of another world on his shoulders. He has no knowledge of Krypton or Jor-El and isn't saddled with any saviour baggage. The issue closes with the epilogue and Clark receiving his famous suit. This time neither a relic of Krypton's colourful past and constructed from his swaddling clothes or a bizarre anachronism that looks nothing like the clothes the Kryptonians wore. This Superman was an outfit created by his mother. There's an element of just going with certain things. The creation of the S-Shield is remarkably iconic and well-designed for non-artistic people like the Kents. But unusually for Byrne, it isn't over-explained, like the idea that cloth next to his skin doesn't rend, tur or attract dirt. The idea that Clark wore such an ostentatious suit to prevent people from looking at his face is a good one. And the final splash is stunning. Our first look at an old friend. As with earlier in the issue, though, a shadowy figure can be seen watching from the Kent Burn. The many differences and alteration Burn introduced to the story here would go on to have significant legs. Whilst the pervading image of Krypton is that seen in the 1978 film, Clark's more modern look, his costume being created by his mother, and this more human interpretation of Superman have all been seen in subsequent adaptations of the character, with elements being taken and used in the animated series in the 1990s, the TV series Lois and Clark and Superman and Lois, and the movie Man of Steel. The latter would also take the notion of Clark wandering the earth, helping people anonymously and, if possible, secretively, until matters were taken out of his hands. The overall impression was a good one, and any issues I have with it are really after the fact. Now I have to question why all of the major developments are told in flashback, why Superman's first appearance was in a leather jacket and jeans, and just what was the wisdom behind having him play football? Back then, though, I didn't care. I and many of my generation had a Superman we could call our own. 
No longer a relic of a bygone era, he reeked of modernity, was reimagined from the ground up and felt like a character we could relate to rather than being a fun grandfather. His backstory was no longer full of sillier elements like super pets or the notion of a super boy who presumably changed his name the night he became a man, which did beg the question, who was the lucky lady? Man of Steel represented a Superman that was sleek and new. I lapped it up. I was blissfully unaware that there were people who were opposed to this, ignorant of other comics professionals who would try to undermine this initiative at every available opportunity. I was more focused on just buying the comics. There were no whining internet pundits to tell me I was wrong for liking this, embarrassingly clinging to the past, afraid of the future. This was the future, Grandad. Get on board or get out. Well, the future is now the past. Superman has continued to evolve, as he should. Evolution doesn't stand still, and sacred cows should be slaughtered. Time waits for no man, super or not. This version of Superman no longer exists. It's as big a relic to today's kids as the many different shades of kryptonite and the terminally 1950s portrayal of Smallville were to me. Some of these versions of Superman have found favour with me. Some have not. That is also correct and proper. Superman's bigger than me. He's bigger than you. And if he's to survive, he has to be bigger than changing fads and popular opinion. But 35 years ago... I was there, man. I was there at the beginning of a new era. It was glorious and shiny and new, and it was mine. And if you're lucky, it was yours too. And if you're even luckier, your version of Superman will be every bit as exciting, as daring, as modern as mine was. And hopefully, you'll love your version as much as I loved mine. Happy 35th birthday, Man of Steel. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. Richard Richard Pryor? Pryor? Yes, it's Superman 3 Movie Minute. On Superman 3 Movie Minute... We'll be examining Richard Lester's 1983 film, Five Minutes at a Time. This time around, we don't just have Superman. We have evil Superman, Lana Lang, a scary robot lady, and yes, Richard Pryor. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Oh, you don't know about me and him? Me and Superman? Playing that trailer was particularly apt as news broke the day before I recorded this episode, the 5th of July 2021, that Richard Donner, director of The Omen, The Goonies, and of course, Superman the movie, had passed away, aged 91 years of age. I don't suppose I'm saying anything particularly unusual or different or original when I say that Richard Donner probably was one of the main influences on my love of comic books. I've read comics before I saw Superman, but seeing that 
on the big screen. It was the first proper film I saw at the cinema. Was certainly one of the reasons that I, and many others, I'm sure, fell in love with this material. It's the reason that many of us can't get past that magnificent John Williams score. It's the reason that many of us can't get past Christopher Reeve as Superman, and indeed Clark Kent. And it's the reason that superhero movies, as they currently exist, exist. Because Richard Donner did it first. Superman the movie was the first superhero movie really to take this stuff as seriously as it needed to be taken. And that's a key element. Take it too seriously and it's doer and miserablest and easy to take the piss out of because ultimately superheroes are a childish fantasy. Richard Donner's version of Superman embraces that it's a fantasy. It makes that it's a fantasy a virtue. Christopher Reeve's performance also assists incredibly in this regard. Superman the movie wasn't Richard Donner's only film. Donner directed across the spectrum. He wasn't a guy you could pigeonhole. The Goonies isn't Superman. Superman isn't Scrooge. Scrooge isn't Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon isn't his famous Twilight Zone episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. The longevity of Donner's career is a testament to his choices and his desire to not just stay in the same box, even though he made four Lethal Weapon movies. Richard Donner made superhero movies. Richard Donner made us believe a man could fly. Richard Donner made us believe, more importantly, that Clark Kent's disguise could actually work. With able assist, obviously, from Christopher Reeve. Neither of these men are with us anymore. In fact, just recently, Ned Beatty, Otis, passed away. And Margot Kidder, Lois Lane, likewise, is no longer here. But one of the beautiful things about film is it lives forever. Forever we will believe a man could fly. And that's a testament to Richard Donner. Okay, we've only got one email in the bag tonight, so we'll uh, just have a quick look at that. And it's a short one from Rob MacArthur. Hello, Rob. My latest Batman pitch starts with a fight. I think the Red Hood inspired me. I have never opened with a fight. I think you're confusing this show with the overlooked Dark Knight, where we recently did cover, Michael Bailey and I, the Red Hood storyline from the Batman comics. But I appreciate the email, nevertheless. If you would like to email into the show, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is where you wish to send your email to. And if you're real lucky, I'll read it on the show. Which kind of implies I don't read every single email on the show, but I do. So your odds are pretty good, I guess. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Man of Steel 1 is a favourite comic of mine and a favourite memory, as you've just heard. Next time on an all-new episode of The Palace of Glittering Delights, we're going to play What If? 
A Facebook post from Aaron Hendley sent me spiralling into what-if territory where I start to wonder what if Marvel had published one of those Spider-Man in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s books like DC did with Superman, Batman, etc, etc etc. And I will be starting to look at that next time, where in my mythical world, Web Spinners, the history of the amazing Spider-Man, starts off with volume one of the 60s. What stories would I put in such a volume? And do they tally with yours? You'll find out next time. Hope everything's okay where you are. Everything's gonna be fine. And I'll see y'all next time. Goodbye.